If you use the internet on a daily basis, and chances are you do, you probably don't put much thought into cybersecurity. You know, your network connections, the pages you visit, the files you download. You should be thinking about these all the time. Welcome to And Security for All. Your host is Kim Hakem. We're here to help you understand, in general terms, how and why your cybersecurity should be kept in check. Now, here is Kim Hakem. Hello, everyone. Happy Friday. I am Kim Hakem, your host. If this is your first time tuning in, welcome to our show today. And for all of our regular listeners, thank you for joining another episode of And Security for All. It's actually been a few weeks since I've been on, so it's great to be back. For those of you that um, don't know, I'm also the CEO of FutureCon Events. We host cybersecurity conferences all over North America. And I'll tell you what, this year, I am hands down, it's been my record year of traveling. It has been crazy. I've been on the road so much in 2023 and it's only April. Um, but today I'm home in the Midwest, St. Louis to be exact. A few weeks ago, I had to cancel today's guest because we had bad storms and lost power. But today the weather couldn't be any better. The flowers are blooming the pollen's in the air. We all have sore eyes, but <laughs> I will take it because we finally can pack away our winter coats. I hope. Um, I was actually in Montreal last week. We um, had our annual, it was the first time we went to Montreal since I've been with FutureCon and um, we did our cybersecurity conference as luck would have it. They had a huge ice storm the day before our event, and half of the city of Montreal lost power. Um, the weather was about in the 30s and 40s. I thought, no way are we going to have anyone that's going to show up for our event. But it actually ended up being a really um, packed event because people needed a place to go that had power and uh, Wi-Fi. So luckily, everybody came to our venue, and our venue did not lose um power so we had a really great show and we didn't have to cancel the show it was pretty crazy though because some of our vendors were staying in hotels um, around the area one in particular was the marriott which i had almost booked at the marriott the marriott lost power and for two days they didn't have power but they didn't turn their guests away so our vendors some of them were on the 35th floor they were telling me they would have to walk their generators went out so they would have to walk up and down 35 floors to get back and forth to their room they got um compensated with a free stay but I'm glad I did not have to experience that um, situation. But Montreal, they are lovely in Montreal. They are the nicest, kindest people um, that attended our event. And I stayed for the weekend. And I know as of Easter Sunday, there still was a huge um, grid that had lost power. So um, I think they're hopefully all back and running, but thank you to all of our Montreal attendees out there. I can't wait to come back um, next year and see you all again. It was so lovely visiting Montreal, and it was such a great event. I'm excited to have a return guest today. I have uh, Matthew Rosenquist. He is the CISO of Eclipse, and he's uh, formerly from Intel Corp. He's a cybersecurity strategist, board advisor, keynote speaker. He's We've had the pleasure of having him on our show several times. He brings some great, insightful um, information to our show. Today, we're going to talk about 
current uh, 2023 cybersecurity events and future predictions. So welcome to the show, Matthew. Oh, thank you very much. Always a pleasure chatting with you, Kim. Yeah, thanks for being here. So yeah, it was pretty crazy that last week my poor vendors had to walk 35 flights in the dark. That's dedication for you. <laughs> I, you know, I may have just pulled up in that in that you know 35th floor and said, nah, nah, I don't need to go to the conference. I'm I know, exactly. Especially <clears throat> since we run it in hybrid, you know, they could have just stayed. I was like, oh my God, 35 floors. They got their steps in. So. Yeah, yeah, probably were nice and sweaty when they got there. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it was very interesting. And you are out in California, right? Yeah, it's beautiful today. Um, sunny, I think it's going to be mid-60s, maybe low 70s, somewhere around there. So, you know, perfect. What part weather. of California are you in again? So, northern central California. So, just uh, outside of Sacramento, the capital there. And I'm right in the foothills of the Sierra Nevada. So, it is it is beautiful. I'm excited to go out to San Francisco for RSA. I love, hopefully we get some good weather you never know what you're going to get in San Francisco, but, um, you know, since they pushed it to April and it's not February anymore, hopefully it'll be pretty beautiful. We'll see. Are you, are you heading over there? No, I try and avoid it every year. There's just too <laughs> many sales and marketing people and everybody wants to be your friend. Yeah. I don't like people that much. Well, so, uh, it's fun for us because we go and we don't have to work. You know what I mean? We're not hosting any events. We're just going out to have fun and say hi to all of our friends. So that's the way to do it. So tell us what's been going on with you. I don't I don't know if you've been on the show in 2023. We were talking last time you were here, I think it was in 2022, talking about some of the predictions yes. of 2023. So what have you been up to this year? And you know, what's been keeping you up and what are some of the predictions that you kind of forecasted in 2022? Did you start seeing them happen this year? Yeah. So, you know, as you know, I do predictions every year and I try and stay away from those overly generic, oh, bad things are going to happen, right? We all know bad things are going to happen. That's our industry. Uh, and I always try and kind of narrow it down to something very tangible and something specific. And this year was no different. Uh, when we started to, to do the assessment, I go through a whole process as I have for, I mean, I've been doing predictions for, I want to say, 15 years. Um, <clears throat> started looking at some of the kind of keystone events and shifts in those underlying engines that drive our industry. And what kind of came out up in front that is, in my opinion, going to be the biggest shift that affects all of us is really around nation states. And we've seen in the past year, more than a year, right? We've seen kinetic warfare. We've seen, you know, Russia and Ukraine at war. We saw uh, in the opening volleys of that tremendous number of cyber attacks and a lot of them faltered. There were a lot of issues in trying to maintain that pace for, you know, uh, some of the nation state uh, uh, aggressive actors. And it was just total chaos from the cybersecurity world. The good thing is, uh, a lot of those attacks didn't succeed, which is really good because most of those attacks were wiper type of attacks. It's just destruction. They're not trying to steal anything. They're trying to bring an environment, a critical infrastructure down. And they weren't all that subtle about it, which is unusual. Normally when a nation state, and there's several very aggressive ones out there, 
when they do conduct those operations, they want plausible deniability. They want to say, oh, no, wasn't me. Um, you know, don't get mad at me. And now they've moved beyond that. And what we're going to see in 2023 is a mental shift. Those aggressive nations out there, they are going to fully embrace the benefits, the efficiencies, the reach of cyber attacks, especially against not only adversaries that they're directly opposed to, but even the allies of those adversaries and support companies that support the infrastructure of everyone. And that changes the game significantly because once that happens, that watershed moment of, yes, we're going to go all in, and we don't necessarily even have to hide it. <clears throat> that means there's funding and a lot more funding than before. So when these nation states who can spend billions of dollars, think about that for a moment, right? They can spend billions of dollars on research, write customized code that may take tens of thousands of hours to develop, develop, test, deploy, things of that sort. That really raises the stakes on what can be done. And we may think, oh, well, I'm just a small business owner or, or I'm just an individual. They're not going to attack me. I don't need to worry about it. You're right. You don't, need, you don't need to worry about them attacking you directly. But that doesn't mean you're not in the line of fire because here's what happens. When they create those zero days or buy zero days day vulnerabilities, sometimes for millions of dollars, create that professional expert code, right, for, for exploiting it, and then release it, it becomes public. And everybody from security researchers to cyber criminals grab that code. They grab those attacks. They figure out what is the vulnerability, what is the code. They break it apart. They dissect it. And then they use pieces for their own purposes. And so those cyber criminals are going to grab it and go, wow, didn't know there was this zero day. Now I do. Wow, I didn't want to spend the time to code the exploit for it. And it's right here, right in my lap. I'm going to go put that in my ransomware. I'm going to go put that in my phishing attack. I'm going to go, you know, attack people's bank accounts with this. And therefore, the risks cascade to every single one of us. So we don't get to escape it. So we go back to the fact that you've got nation states willing to write checks for billions of dollars, and in some cases, tens or even hundreds of billions of dollars for these capabilities to get them out in the wild. All that research, all that technology goes into the hands that, you know, are going to eventually be attacking every single person. So that for 2023 is really the biggest thing. And, you know, already, we're seeing that come into to the market, into the place. We're seeing a lot more critical infrastructure attacks. We're seeing a lot more sophisticated attacks. And this, it's not just going to be limited to 2023. This is a change of state. We will have to worry about this from this point forward in time. Because you've got money, you've got intent to use, and that affects everybody. So there's a few other predictions that I made. In fact, if, if you wanted to go look at the video, uh, I put the YouTube video uh, here on the screen. So you can go out to Cybersecurity Insights channel and, and look at the video. Uh, and if you want, look at the 2022 predictions as well and see if I actually nailed it. 
which is uh, I, I really want everybody to do that. So what are we what are we doing good offensively to you know counter attack some of your predictions? Well, you know, one of the things is the United States just released the national cybersecurity strategy. And in that, there's there's a lot of we should be doing what we normally do anyway. We should be communicating and collaborating and hugging each other and all of that. Um, but there's also two little in interesting tidbits in there. And the first one I think is the most interesting. It states that the United States will use all manner and resources, including intelligence, including warfare, both digital and kinetic, right? Planes, bombs, ships, whatever, to proactively go after and undermine cyber threats looking to cause harm for United States interests. And this is the first time. Now, the United States government and a few other governments out there have done that in the past, but very pensively, right? They wanted to be able to deny it and, okay, no, it wasn't us, right? So we've seen things like that in the past, but this is putting it out front saying, hey, everybody, hey, world, we're going to go do this. The gloves are off. We're going to use all our resources as a nation to target attackers, including foreign aggressive governments that are going to attack us or our allies or interests. That, again, is another watershed moment because, again, the gloves are off. Now you've got, you know, the, the biggest country out there with the biggest cyber budget basically saying, hey, we are going to proactively, also reactively, but preemptively go out and do what we do best. And that that's a game changer. Now, we'll see how that manifests. There still need to be some political things and some oversight, some articles that need to be written for authorization and, and whatnot. But once all those processes are in place, I think you're going to see a lot more targets, uh, even foreign nations, get attacked. And the decision kill chain for those types of attacks, cyber attacks, or even potentially kinetic, is going to be much, much shorter. So that's the first thing out of it. The second thing out of it is, and this affects kind of all the businesses out there, it is setting an expectation and they're saying the liability for uh, insecure products, software, services, companies can't just push that back off to the customer or consumer. And nowadays, when we install a piece of software or sign up for a service, if you look at the EULA that nobody reads, there's some legal speak in there that basically indemnifies them from any harm. So even if they choose to put a product out knowing there are exploitable uh, 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 vulnerabilities in it, yeah, you can't really sue them. You could try, but they're going to be indemnified for it. And what the national strategy is saying is the government wants to change that and hold companies, manufacturers, developers, service providers, hold them accountable from a liability perspective for the cybersecurity state of their products. That's going to make people a little nervous. Now, I don't know if that's going to, they're going to be able to manifest anything by the end of the year, but this, you know, really sets a direction that hopefully will reduce some of those supply chain attacks, will make the software and operating systems and hardware and appliances and everything we use more secure against 
those types of attacks that we foresee. That is really hard to wrap your head around, you know, because it's, you know, who is, I've been asking this since I've had this show for a couple of years, you know, are there ever going to be any sort of tariffs or penalties or something, you know, sanctioned on companies that don't have their cybersecurity posture in check, but, but who is responsible? Is it the supplier or is it the company? So which one is going to be fined if, if we ever get to a point where there might be fines, but who's going to be responsible for the, you know, for the breach, have you, the company or the supplier? Well, I think it's going to depend, right? And you've got regulatory standards where they can impose fines. But if you're talking liability, that just means I can sue you. So there's, you know, there's criminal, there's regulatory fines, and then there's also uh, liability for lawsuits as well. So if we start shifting that bar, there is going to be more focus on those developers, on those manufacturers and suppliers, right? They're not going to be able to hide behind that legalese, uh, in, you know, embedded, with the EU, embedded within the EULA. So, yeah, when people start to look, they're going to take that into account. Did the company that buy the software or product, did they do something egregiously wrong and maybe they're accountable? Or are, they, are you also going to take into effect, hey, that manufacturer didn't, you know, meet any kind of standard, put things in that were vulnerable, didn't fix them, and therefore made everybody, right, that uses that product more vulnerable and at risk. Maybe they have some accountability here. And, you know, judges and juries aren't going to like a big fat software vendor going, ah, you know, I know we make billions of dollars, but, yeah, we wanted to get the product out fast. So we were going to take care of those security issues later. That's how, just not going to fly. Well, how educated do you think that, you know, attorneys and judges are on these type of situations? I mean, this you know, I, I, I'm not seeing, you know, attorneys, you know, come take, for example, our events coming to our events, trying to be educated on what's happening in the cybersecurity industry. So how are they, I assume maybe in law school now, there's, there's probably different classes that you have to take because this is going to be the wave of the next generation. But how are these, um, you know, these great attorneys that are out there that, we pay, you know, hundreds of thousands of dollars to protect us in certain litigations. How are they keeping educated on issues like this? Well, the legal industry, especially, you know, for lawsuits is uh, they tend to follow the money. So if currently businesses are protected from that because of the EULA, there really isn't much of a chance of a lawsuit coming in. Why get educated on how to either create a lawsuit or defend against it? when it's not very likely, you're protected by contractual barriers, which are normally pretty strong, right? There's precedent for those. But if that landscape changes and there's money to be had, you're gonna have the lawyers that wanna file those suits get better. And on the defense side, you're gonna have to have those law firms also get better in defending against those suits. So the injection of money, the simple injection of money will raise all boats and drive the industry to accommodate that. And when it comes to the judges and interpretation of the laws and so forth, that still has to happen. 
you still have to put the laws in place or the regulations or the expectations. You still have to have case law and drive these into courts and set certain standards and, and whatnot. So it takes a while in our legal system. But again, removing that contractual barrier is a huge wall that most lawsuits are right now will bounce off of, right? You're behind the wall, you're safe. You tear down the wall and now you're potentially exposed. And lawsuits, especially punitive lawsuits, can be incredibly impactful. So the calculus for the value proposition of cybersecurity fundamentally changes. And it should start leaning towards, well, let's do what is great while it's small. Let's make sure that our products are not vulnerable out the door and that we can patch them, you know, after they go out and we are doing the right things, ethical things in notifying customers uh, and things of that sort. That's going to cost a lot less than the potential punitive damages down the road. I guess there would be case law that would be just relatively similar to other products of a you know auto industry or something like that but um but i'm sure it's going to get tough to go to case law to look things up but let me jonathan kimmett joined the show and he's one of our guest hosts and he has a few questions thanks for being here jonathan his first question he said do you think that our um gov cyber resources are at the point to be able to target attackers that's a great so yes and no if you go into some of the rooms where the windows are painted, you know, um, you can't really talk about it. Yes, they've been doing attacks uh, and offensive operations for some time. Uh, it's not simply intelligence gathering. It's not simply just defensive responsive actions. There have been work, uh, but it's been kept quiet, right? Because even our nation wants plausible deniability because up until this latest strategy, we've never come out and said, we are going to go and attack. We are going to preemptively or reactively use even kinetic weapons or in combination with kinetic weapons. That's a huge step. So yes, there are certain government agencies uh, and departments that have conducted offensive operations. Uh, I won't go into the details of those. Uh, some of them have been unmasked in certain ways. So you can go out and Google some of those and others are just very highly speculated, speculated that it was the United States or one of our allies, um, Britain or England, you know, whatever, whatever Germany. Um, so yes, but again, now when you have the president in the White House saying, hey, gloves are off, we're gonna go do this. I'm not gonna shy away from the questions. In fact, I may go to the podium and say, this is what we did. This is who we did it to and this is why. And that's, that's a sea change. So we'll see how it manifests. Um, but if we do want to make sure that other nation states that can throw those billions of dollars, they need to realize that there are risks to them as well and that infrastructure. And if we can make them waste that money because we proactively attack them, that may be what happens. So a couple, I'm going to read these questions together that Jonathan kind of comments. Um, he said, uh, holding developers accountable for cyber risk is a major IT cultural change. And then he said, both legal and regulatory responses are based on the harm caused by the cyber risk, which I guess would be just like someone driving a car and an airbag goes off and kills someone. I mean, I guess it's relative in those 
you know, I guess they would have a case in those kind of situations. Yeah. And, you know, when we when we look at like supply chain attacks where one company is attacked and yet it exposes or potentially causes harms or damage or impacts to hundreds or thousands of their downstream customers. Now you can start looking at that and going, wait a second, what was the root cause? Oh, you didn't apply a patch that had been around for a long time that the industry says you should have? Okay, let's see if we can uh, do a lawsuit and based on these new rules, make you pay. And that's what it's going to be. And the first time that happens, that's going to establish a precedent. That will establish the beginnings of case law for these types of cases. But, you know, as he mentioned, it's holding developers accountable for cyber risks is an IT cultural change. Yes, finally. Right. And I wouldn't I wouldn't actually say it's an IT change. I would say it's a developer change. It's an engineering and architecture change. It's those groups. Um, It can also it does include IT. But, you know, it's really the people, those brilliant people that are creating the software code as well. Uh, or hardware, or firmware, whatever, uh, making sure that they're doing their due diligence and they have the appropriate level of resources to to do those security checks, to embed flexible architecture to be able to do, um, you know, uh, downstream patching after the sale, things of that. That's really important because I know a lot of groups want to do it, but they're not given the resources to. So now I think this, because of that fundamental change, the expectation will be there and the resources have to follow. So yeah, I think it's good for everyone. So um, shifting gears a little bit, I wanna, we, I wanna keep time because I wanna end, cause I wanna talk about chat GPT, but- Oh yeah, that's one of my predictions too. I so know, but that. before we get to that, oh. I wanna pick your brain a little bit cause I wanna talk about TikTok and I wanna talk about Instagram. And the reason being is, you know, I, you know, I removed TikTok a while back off of my phone and I have to say, I miss it. <laughs> you know, I'm not sorry to say, but I'm also, it, it, it's kind of a waste of time. But, um, but, you know, last year out at RSA, TikTok had a huge presence at RSA. Me and my team ended up going to their party. They had to spend, they had to spend a half a million dollars, I bet, on what they were doing out there. Then they came back, you know, and then there was a breach. Now their CISO is no longer their CISO. And the reason I'm bringing this up is because I have conversations with my my children that are in their 20s. And, you know, we have arguments, you know, they say, you know, Instagram's worse than TikTok. And, you know, TikTok's not really out of China. What's TikTok really doing? And I say, you know, I don't, I don't know. The cybersecurity experts tell me to not have it on my phone and I don't want my phone compromised. So I don't have it on my phone. So can you break it down to us and, and, and let us know, you know, what actually is, you know, we, we know, you know, the basis of, you know, it's ran out of China, although, you know, some of the younger generations, you know, they, they're saying it's not and, and Hollywood, everyone's on TikTok, you know, so, so, what is the harm of TikTok? It all comes down to trust, okay? And right now, TikTok um, is kind of in the government sites. The United States government and other government, and by the way, other governments do this as well, 
they are looking at certain vendors, especially if they can be influenced or through being run by aggressive nation states. There is a risk that the aggressive nation state will leverage that company and their technology to gather information, to cause harm, to conduct attacks, uh, steal IP, all those kinds of things, right? Bad, bad things. So we've seen this before. Huawei, telecom equipment, right? Basically, a whole bunch of governments came out and said, we looked at the technology, we looked how they're integrated uh, and, and can be manipulated by the government that they're based out of. And it represents a significant risk. And there's even reports of, yes, we've seen malware. We've seen all sorts of different um, illegal activities through that equipment, as well as a whole bunch of potential activities that they could do if they decided to. So they decided, okay, Huawei, you're gone. Rip it out. You're not allowed because you could compromise the communications, the integrity, the availability, and all these things of the United States government, of critical infrastructures here. So you've been deemed too big of a threat, you're gone. We had an issue with uh, Kaspersky, right? A Russian anti-malware. And years ago, you can go back over a decade where the US was saying, hey, we're concerned. When you install this particular piece of software or, or any security software kind of uh, you know, endpoint, it gets hooked into the operating system. It can see applications. It can modify files. And if it turns malicious, it can cause significant harm, significant harm, and be a catalyst and a launching board for a whole bunch of really bad attacks, even for people that aren't using it. Okay. Um, just recently, they announced uh, that they were looking into banning it. Now, Kaspersky decided, okay, you're right, I'm based in Moscow, the whole world is kind of saying they're concerned. And they said, no, 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 there shouldn't be a concern, we don't do that. But they decided to move and headquarter themselves in Switzerland. And then they said, see, we're not a Russian company now. So, but that doesn't really matter now, does it? Because the owner is Russian and has property there and family there. The developers are in Russia. So if the Russian government really wanted to influence them, they have the means to go to those developers, to go to the owner, to, to seize assets, to do all sorts of nefarious things, to force them to capitulate to whatever they would want to do to weaponize it. When we look at TikTok, the exact same situation. Different government, it originated out of China, China controls ruthlessly companies, um, and they have the influence. They have the influence over the developers. And they decided, oh, well, we'll create a subsidiary in some other place outside of China. I think it's Hong Kong or somewhere. They may even have one in the U.S., right? And, and therefore, no, no, we're fine. They can't influence us. Oh, no, they absolutely still positively can. And for TikTok, because it's installed primarily on phones, right, or almost exclusively on phones, um, if that turns malicious, and today it may be completely clean, but tomorrow, again, an aggressive government that wants to conduct attacks, wants to uh, steal information, wants to cause harm, create fear, or whatever, they could change that code overnight, have it pushed to every install base, and you could either be compromised, your information, your data, 
or they could use your device as a platform of attack to attack other things that they do want to take down, right? Critical infrastructure, power grid, government, so on and so forth. So when somebody says, oh, no, 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 it's fine. It's innocuous. No, if it's turned to a malicious tool, you then become a bot and part of the problem because your machine will then attack, you know, and everybody else that has it installed will then attack like a botnet, right? Will attack it or your data, right? Your information, everything that you do and who you know, which they also gather for intelligence gathering, right? To know who to target, all that falls into their lap. So yes, it is a worry. And again, that company was based in China. The executives, the developers, the funding, the backing, all there. Right? So if you simply say, oh, well, we created a subsidiary, so we're no longer could be influenced by them, that's absolutely positively false. And the simple fact that someone is going to say that tells me I should trust them even less. So yeah, there's a challenge there. If you want to compare it to other uh, programs, social media programs like Instagram, I'm no fan of Meta or Facebook. They are probably one of the largest harvesters of personal and private data on the planet. But again, their company, their executives, their infrastructure, everything is here, which means their necks are on the line. And there really is no influence, right, that the government's going to come in and say, hey, you know, make this malicious. They're going to tell them no. And we've got the legal structures to allow that. Right, to allow companies to, to say, no, I'm not going to turn my things into malicious regardless of whatever company or country or government tells me to. So we have to look at it at a bigger picture, but it all comes down to trust. Would you give a thief who turned programmer, would you install that thief's software? Even if they said, oh, no, I'm a, I'm a good person today, would you install their banking software? I hope the answer is no. And unfortunately, China has a notorious industry of stealing intellectual property and supporting cyber attacks, uh, ransomware, fraud, all sorts of things. So there's not a whole lot of trust there. So Jonathan said, at what point do uh, tool content recommendations for social media applications cross the line into censorship and how can we ensure that such recommendations do not impede on the freedom of expression and access to diverse viewpoints so i've got to kind of punt on this one <clears throat> um, although i do stuff for privacy and so forth what you're talking about is uh you know first amendment rights and there are scholarly industries that, that really know this stuff, and it gets very complex. It gets very, very muddy. Uh, we do know that there are rules and there are limits to our freedom of information, to our you know, rights to free speech. There are limits there. And when we talk about social media, a lot of the limits are actually set by policy of that platform itself. So if Twitter or X or whatever Elon Musk calls it today, uh, if he decides, I am going to forbid the word lollipop, and anybody that posts a post or tries to, with the word lollipop, I will delete it. That's his prerogative. 
If you don't like it, go to a different platform, right? If you want to try and sue him, um, that's free speech. Good luck. When we yeah. talk about governments coming in and saying, okay, you ha- you can't say this or you can say that, or we're going to prosecute or persecute you, that's a different story. There are a lot of rules, and it isn't you can say anything you want anywhere at any time. That is actually not free speech. You can't go into a movie theater in the middle of the movie and scream fire. You cannot do that. There's case law about that. So remember, there are already rules. There's precedent. But there's a whole industry that has to talk about that. I'm not a scholarly expert on that, so I cannot intelligently give a good opinion on that one. I'm, I'm, I'm sorry. I definitely could spend a whole hour on social media because there's so much to talk about. And I don't, I, I want to really get over to chat GPT, but there's a, yeah, I'm going to have to save that for another show. But... Okay, we'll save that for another one. We can talk yeah. about all sorts of things. Yeah, because I know you want to talk. Disinformation, yes. Oh, it's yeah. juicy. Yeah, exactly. Um, so let's talk about chat. Chat GPT for a little bit, and for our view, our listeners over on Voice America, because most of our listeners on LinkedIn are um, cybersecurity practitioners. A lot of our listeners that maybe don't know what Chat GPT like, can you let them know what it is and what you predicted and what we're seeing now? Yeah, so um, Chat GPT is it's an AI tool. It's a capability. It's actually GPT is generative pre-trained processing or processor, something like that. All it really is, right, is the ability to use natural language processing, which means talk to it in common language, and for it to be able to generate a response to that that brings with it the wealth of knowledge of what it was trained on. Okay, so that's, that's kind of complex. Let's instead get an example. So if you wanted to go to ChatGPT and you could ask it, what are the most relevant news stories today about cybersecurity? And it would give you a list. But maybe you wanted something more. Maybe you only wanted to know about things related to privacy breaches. So it would remember what you said, and you could go in and say, narrow that down to just privacy breaches. Oh, okay, so it would do that. Then, you know what? I would really like a summation of that. Can you summarize that into five main points? And it would do it. It would distill that down into the five most salient points in plain English to you. Not giving you links or anything like that, but actually generate text. And when you say, you know what, can you write me a 1,000 word blog based on that and emphasizing how the industry should address those issues? And it'll do it. Now, because these are really just early versions uh, of this technology, they don't always get it right. They don't. but you can start to see the power of it when you're asking it to generate content, reports, articles, blogs, um, contracts, things of that sort. You can also use it to say, write me code. 
write me code for a web page with a blue background and um, you know a place to gather people's emails for subscription to a newsletter. Uh, put this as the title. And you know what? Find me a nice picture that has a sunset on it and put it in the background and it'll do it. Okay, so that's the functionality. And you may think, hey, this is cool, which it is. But it is a powerful, powerful tool and cool. But the bad guys also see the power it could apply to what they want to accomplish in the world. Hey, GPT, create a phishing message that has a high likelihood of somebody clicking on this malicious link. Hey, GPT, who should I be attacking that has these kinds of following assets, right, and are most likely to do X, Y, and Z? There's lots of things that you can use it for, both good and for bad. And we're seeing, and this is actually part of my prediction that I predicted for this year, we would see these AI technologies, ChatGPT just being one of them. There are others. There are a slew of others out there. Um, we're going to see them being leveraged by cyber attackers to pursue their goals and being woven in for better accuracy, better effectiveness and efficiency, and to be able to attack on scale, we're already seeing it. Powerful tools can be used in powerful ways, both for good or for bad. And that's where we're at right now. And we are seeing a flood of discussions and examples of how people are getting these GPT technologies, AI technologies, to write malicious code, to amplify and improve phishing attacks. Right. And those are just a couple of the bad examples. Some of the good examples are, you know, um, uh, debug my code, uh, parse through all my alerts and tell me, you know, what I need to know, uh, things of that sort. It's it's being used on both sides. So it's chat GBT, like who created it and. So you just go to chat GPT. I just kind of opened it up right now. And is it just a free resource right now? Or is it starting, like, explain that to us. So, um, you know, OpenAI, I believe, is the one that created it. There's several groups behind these different ones. But what really matters is you don't have to go to the chat GPT site anymore because Microsoft bought a huge chunk of that company and they've integrated it go out to Bing, their search engine, it's using it. They are going to be rolling out a chat GT, uh, GPT uh, functionality into Office documents. Google, on the other hand, has had theirs uh, for a while. It was a codename Sparrow. Uh, the product name is actually called Bard, I believe. So they're in the process of integrating it, not only with search, but with Google Docs and a whole bunch of other uh, Google applications and services, right? We see these GPT tools being used to generate resumes. We see it in HR systems now starting to pop up to parse resumes and figure out the best candidates and generate respond letters or, or interview questions or things like that. So again, we're going to see this permeate in all sorts of different tools. And that's really what the, the power is. GPT is a front end. It's an interface. Think of it as an interface that you can ask plain questions about complex topics. And it will give you answers that you can understand. 
So uh, as a funny example, my daughter, um, she wanted to know about, uh, I think it was, no, it wasn't quantum encryption. It was um, um, public-private key pairs. She wanted to understand what that technology was. So I told her, go to ChatGPT and put in there, explain to me public-private uh, encryption, right, um, uh, in terms of monkeys and bananas. And it did. It came back and said, okay, imagine you're a monkey and you have a banana and you want to be able to, and it explained it to her. And she came back and she said, I totally understood it. I don't know if I'm a monkey <laughs> now, but I totally understood it, right? There's a tremendous power there for the students out there. Hey, Chad GPT, write a 2000 word essay on Shakespeare's blah, blah, blah. And it'll do it. Here's your paper. Doesn't take very long at all. So, so we're all used to, you know, Googling things. You know, I Google things all the time. Or if I need to fix something at home, I'll just YouTube it. You know, it's you, you don't need directions anymore. Sure. You can get it all, you know, on the internet. So that, I guess, is Bing, I guess, is trying to replace Google and then give Google a run for its money. Is that? It like will the be whole... the next level, the next evolution, if you will, of interfacing with technology. Okay. Uh, right now, you have a desktop, and you have to type, and you have to move your mouse, and so forth. Uh, processor uh, Processing like this allows us to potentially move beyond that. Okay. But there's also some risks, and lots of people are worried. Um, you know, you have uh, authors, uh, you have article writers, or, you know, people who work for newspapers and editor. ChatGPT is going to take my job, right? So they're worried about my job is going to be lost. You've got educators going, wait a second. Every student now is going to be an A student, right? And yet they're going to come out of the class not knowing anything. They're just going to ask GPT to write all the questions. GPT has shown that it can pass the bar. It can pass medical certifications, right? You give it the test, it'll give you the answers and the essays that go with it, right? So it can pass all those things. So there's a lot of fear roaming around. We're going to lose all our jobs. Nobody's going to be smart. School's going to be worthless. Some universities and even high schools have banned it, banned it. If you're caught using ChatGPT in the classroom or on your homework, you're done. We're, we're kicking you out of the college. Right? They've also banned it for the professors. Now, that's a small set. It's a lot of fear going around about innovation. And I want to say, first off, everybody just needs to cool their jets. Right? It's, and if we take the, the, the most pressing problem that people perceive, it's, it's, it's going to put everybody out of work. Right? My job's going to go away. Okay, the reality is your job is going to get taken. But it's not by ChatGPT. It's going to be by somebody else who knows how to use ChatGPT to do your job better than you're doing it without it. So if you want to be competitive, learn to use the latest tools. Back in the day when we learned on typewriters, and yes, I'm old enough to um, have learned on an electric typewriter, an IBM Selectronic, right? When Microsoft Word came out, you needed to move to that because the typist roles in the world were gonna go away. 
if you know, and it was you were going to lose your job to somebody that knew how to use a word processor. The same thing is here. And in education, I was talking with one professor, and what he was doing was brilliant. He was saying, not only are we going to forbid ChatGPT, we're going to build lessons around it. In fact, gather around, students. What we're going to do is we're going to ask GPT to summarize, you know, that Shakespeare work. And then all of us together are going to work to correct it, to point out the errors. That means that the students have to really know the material. And I think it's a beautiful use of that tool. And it cuts down on, okay, you know, you have to, to do all this and that and, and all the busy work. We're going to let technology do that. And yet we're going to leverage it for the benefits. And we're going to see things like that go across the board. So don't fear innovation. Learn to embrace it. We do need to put parameters around it, guardrails. But let's embrace it. Right. Otherwise, we would still be on horseback with gas lanterns and, you know, without electricity. We have to embrace technology and innovation. Uh, so is, is uh, being uh, it's part of Microsoft, is it its own entity or is it just a piece of Microsoft? Are we going to see like being be its own public, you know, company like Google is? I'm kind of yeah. uh, OK. It's it'll be integrated. It's, it's just an okay. enhancement. Right. So again, they've already, there are, there's already plans to integrate it into Word and point in Excel and everything else. Right now in Excel, have you ever tried to create a custom macro in Excel or a custom, you know, uh, equation in there? It's a no, pain. That, that, yeah, that's for my younger employees. Yeah, okay. They know like, how to have, do that. You I have don't. to use these obscure <laughs> yeah. COS for cosine or, or yeah. look up and you have to write this in, in, unreasonably complex search or, or instruction parameter. Now you can just say, chat GPT, average all the sales figures from Minneapolis from year 2021 to 2024, and give me a Gantt chart on that. It does it. I mean, I think it's pretty cool. You know, I'm like, I'm looking, I'm on my other computer, you know, and look up Bing, <laughs> and I'm like, I kind of can't, can't yeah. wait when I get off this podcast. I'm going to go, I'm going to check it out and search around on it. But and it's advancing too, right? GP Chat GPT 3 was only text. Chat GPT 4, which is already out, is called multimodal. So it will work with images as well. You can feed it an image and have it describe it for you. You can tell it to create an image and it'll create it. Create me an image of the sunset with the North Star and a dog eating bark, whatever. Um, and it'll generate it. You can feed it a picture, a cartoon, or just a regular picture and say, hey, turn this into a cartoon of me. Okay. And it'll do it. So we're moving out of just text into images. And very soon there will be sound and voices past that. And after that, full video. Create me a movie with the following plot and these types of characters. Okay. It can already write the script. Changes are, are afoot, ladies and gentlemen. Yep, we're, we're heading into the Jetsons <laughs> land, right? <laughs> It's I mean, tool. very powerful. You know, it's it's, but again, then there's you know, of course, with every good thing, there's a bad thing. But it is, um, yes. 
You know, I heard, and I know we're getting ready to wrap up, though. Um, I heard, though, that there were ways that, like, professors that, I guess it's going to be so advanced that they're not going to be able to tell it's from Jet, from chat GPT. Yeah, I there's think. an ongoing race. So as soon as, um, you know, the education community said, oh, my gosh, they'll be able to write the research papers on this. Um, I think it was a Stanford student actually uh, wrote code to be able to determine, right, to check and see if ChatGP wrote a particular paper. But then shortly after that, right, the GPT advanced and that tool didn't work so well, right? And so we're going to see this battle. We have to worry about deep fakes. We have to worry about if I say write a paper um, uh, in the style of Kim Hakim about this topic, it'll do it. So how do I know it was really you or it was somebody else? The audience may not know. So we're going to see um, an arms race, if you will, uh, around these types of AI generative processes. And again, not just limited to text, also voice, sounds, um, images, movies, all those kinds of things. So as we're coming down to almost two minutes left of the show, what message would you want to leave with all of our listeners today? Um, just kind of an overview of how to keep your cybersecurity posture safe and what you should be aware of. And that's kind of a big thing to say in a minute, but what, <laughs> what message would you want to leave? For this listeners? year is going to be a significant change in the amount of money and resources thrown at the aggressive nature of cybersecurity. So the attackers are gonna get a big boost this year and it's going to continue to go up from there. So we need to think about the problems at a larger scale and we can't directly as individuals have any impact on that. However, in working together and communicating together and collaborating together and with public-private partnerships like with the government and so forth, it is possible to make a difference and we need to do that. We need to evolve our industry. Australia is, is doing a great um, uh, you know, idea right now in pulling together people, experts around the world, soliciting, trying to build some of those, th that framework of communication and collaboration, because by 2030, they want to be the most cyber secure nation on the planet. And it takes those kinds of initiatives to really move the needle back to an area where, okay, the risk is now manageable. If we don't contribute, then we let the bad guys win. So we need to communicate and collaborate and work together. And Matthew, what's the best way people can find you? I would assume LinkedIn. LinkedIn is great. Um, uh, I'm always on that. I do have the security insights uh, channel where I post a lot of videos and, and me ranting about things. Uh, you can see the link there. You're welcome to go there. My predictions are out there. But yeah, LinkedIn is probably the best. So come find me on LinkedIn. I'm out there. And we'll uh, repost that YouTube uh, video after post-show. So uh, Matthew, thank you so much for being on the show again today. Matthew uh, Rosenquist, he is... Uh, Always love having him on this show. He gives us so, so much insight on what's happening in the future of cybersecurity. Thank you, everyone, for tuning in to another show. Um, I hope you all have a great weekend. Enjoy, hopefully, wherever you are, the beautiful weather. If you haven't, enjoy your family. Stay safe, stay secure, and we'll see you next week. Thanks, everyone. Thank you for tuning into And Security for All. 
Be sure to join your host, Kim Hakem, for another episode of the show next Friday at noon Pacific time and 3 p.m. Eastern time on the Voice America Business Channel. And don't forget, you can follow Kim on LinkedIn by searching for Kim Hakem. That's Kim, H-A-K-I-M, to keep yourself posted on all of her upcoming cybersecurity events. Are you a cybersecurity professional that needs to earn continuing educational hours? FutureCon Events brings high-level cybersecurity training discovering cutting-edge security approaches, managing risk in the ever-changing threat of the cybersecurity workforce. Cybersecurity is no longer just an IT problem. To learn more about attending a virtual event, go to futurecountevents.com or email info at futurecountevents.com or follow us on LinkedIn or Twitter at FutureConHQ. Don't miss the weekly FutureCon seamless podcast series focusing on the insights and thoughts of chief security officers and industry pioneers making a difference throughout the world. Kim Hakem, CEO of FutureCon Events, and Darren Anderson, CEO and co-founder Next Robotics, host seamless podcasts started by a team of entrepreneurs with experience in fields like smart cities, technology, cybersecurity. The result is a series of podcasts unlike anything you've ever heard anywhere. Listen where you get your podcasts, including Apple, Spotify, and Stitcher.